Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we pray that you're encouraged by this message. Now lean in as we hear from God's Word together. Today we are in James chapter 4. So if you have a Bible today, I would encourage you to turn to James chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 today. Over the last several weeks, we've been taking bigger sections of Scripture, but um, we're kind of slowing it down now here in chapter 4, just looking at seven verses. If you don't have a Bible, you probably have a YouVersion Bible app, and uh, I would encourage you to download that. You can um, take notes there. You can um, uh, follow along with the outline as well, but I would encourage you to follow along there. And if you're new to Awaken, I want to let you know that as a church, we will go verse by verse through some books of the Bible, at least every year. A couple years ago, we did the book of Ruth. Uh, we've gone through Ephesians. Last year, we did the book of Jonah. This year, we're going through the book of James. And I want to start off today by asking you all a question today. Has there ever been a moment in your life where you wanted something so bad? Maybe it was an electronic device. Maybe it was a car, a house, maybe it was, um, you know, some shoes or some clothes that you looked at this and you said, I will do whatever it takes to get that thing. How many of you would ever say that you've done that? Now, some of you, you're looking at me super spiritually and you're like, pastor, no, not me. We're in church. I'm not materialistic at all. Like, what do you say? No, the reality is we've all said a variation of that phrase before, or we've said that phrase before in our lives. In fact, I'm reminded my oldest son, Brody, uh, back in like 2019, I think it was, he wanted a Nintendo Switch Lite. And they're like 200 bucks. And he comes to me and he's like, dad, I want a Nintendo Switch. And I said, that's great. Like, I want a lot of things too. Like, I don't know what you want me to do about this. And he's like, oh, come on, dad. Like, I'll do whatever it takes to get this Nintendo Switch. And I was like, I don't have money to just throw at a Nintendo Switch. Like, I can't do that for you. It's impossible for me to do that. Like $200 is a lot for an eight-year-old. $200 is a lot for a 39-year-old, right? Like that's just, that's a lot of money. I don't care who you are. And, and so I said, I just, I can't do that for you. But if you're willing to work and save, I will buy you a game. Because I'm like, he's eight years old. 50 bucks into this thing, he's out. He's buying a Lego game, you know, Nerf guns. Like, I don't know what he's doing. He's not going all in on this Nintendo Switch. So I was like, I'll buy you a game if nothing else. And so he's like, okay. So he started saving his birthday money. He started saving, if he got money for Christmas, he's saving that. And then he started like figuring out, he became entrepreneurial. He was like, okay, I'm going to figure out a job. Like I, I'm going to build a lemonade stand. That's what he came up to me and he said, and I said, son, I don't want to, you know, kill your dreams. Like if you want to do it, do it. But let me just give you a little dose of reality with this. Like we live on kind of a country road. So like not a whole lot of cars are zooming past our road. So you're going to probably not make a lot. And I said, how much are you charging for this lemonade? He said, 10 bucks. I said, 10 bucks. <laughs> I was like, Chick-fil-A doesn't even charge 10 bucks and their lemonade is really good. Like people drive all over to get that. It's like three bucks top, 10 bucks. Like, who do you think you are, man? And so, but, but you better believe that he saved money. He did jobs. He was doing his brother's laundry. He was doing, uh, he was cleaning his brother's rooms. He was cleaning the house. Like I had him out there doing yard work and we live on a couple acres and we did some trimming of some bushes outside and he grabbed the tree branches from the front half of the yard, two acres to the back of the yard. And like, he's doing all this work, doing whatever it takes to earn money. And you better believe 10 months into it, he had enough money to buy his very first Nintendo Switch. And he was stoked. I was sad because that meant now I had to buy a game. And I, you better believe he made sure I lived up to that promise. But, but, but here's the thing. I remember being 13 years old too. And, and I, I wanted this guitar so bad. Like I saw this guitar and I was like, I do, will do whatever it takes to get that guitar. 
Now, in New Mexico, they don't have grass like they do here. Like, it's probably about the size of this stage. And, and so, I, in New Mexico, I had terrible allergies. Like, if you've ever seen the movie Hitch, like, the way his eyes and his ear was, like, that was me mowing the lawn. Like, I was like, oh, I feel so terrible. But I did yard work. I washed my parents' cars. I built my parents a patio with those little bricks, those square uh, concrete bricks. I laid a patio so they could put patio furniture and, and a, a grill out there. I was doing whatever it took. And you better believe by the end of summer, I had that guitar. And the reason why I share all these stories with you today is because what we're going to see in James chapter 4 is that you and I have the capacity to do whatever is necessary to get what we want. And that's not always a good thing. But God in his grace and his mercy is willing to do whatever it takes to get what he wants. In fact, the title of today's message is The War for Your Heart. The War for Your Heart. Let's read James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Verse six, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. What you'll notice in James chapter four is that his tone completely shifts from that of other chapters and other verses in this letter. James kind of just rolls up his sleeves and he kind of hits a square between the eyes and he uses some very forceful language to address a very important topic. James starts off chapter four by talking about fights and quarrels. And when we read this, it's easy for us right on the surface to think that he's talking about stuff that's very shallow, very surface level, just some disagreements that some of the believers might've had, but it's a lot deeper than that. There's a lot more going on. Like it's not just disagreements about which music is better or what pastor preaches the best or, or whatever. In the original language, the words that he uses here are so much stronger And what he's really referring to here is a war. He's like, hey, Christians, you guys, you're not just bickering at one another. You guys are at war with one another. And we've really seen this all throughout the book of James. He's constantly addressing all of these tensions within their church. And as we've broken apart this letter, as we've uh, looked at what some of these things mean, we realize that for a lot of us, we struggle with a lot of the same tensions in the church today. James so far has been saying that we all belong to the same family, that we all have the same Holy Spirit living within us. And then he doubles down on all of that and he tells us the why behind the war. And so today what I want to do is point out two realities of this war. And then what we're going to see at the very end is some hope uh, at the end of these verses. But the first reality is this. We war against each other. We war against each other. Look again at what he says in verse one. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. 
You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. See, like I said, James starts off this chapter in somewhat a familiar way because he asks a rhetorical question. He already knows the answer. He already knows what he's going to do, but he starts it off like he has other verses with this rhetorical question. And he's talking about this relational conflict that we experience. This external visible behavior that we see flows from a source within us, that it flows from the heart. See, the cause of many of our fights and quarrels in our relationships is me. It's you. It's the desires and the things that I long for, the things that I will do, whatever it takes to get. In fact, the word desire in the Greek can be translated to hedon. It's where we get our word hedonist from. And this is a person who endlessly pursues their own pleasure. They're pleasure seekers. And they say that these desires for pleasure battle within us. James says the reason why we have these conflicts is because we are sinful people. We are self-seeking people. It's the part of us that puts ourselves first. It's the part of us that prioritizes our own fulfillment before and above everyone else. This is why Jesus speaks so much about if you want to become the greatest, you got to become the least. He's talking about the kingdom. He's like, if you want to know what the kingdom of God is like, get out from the front of the line and go to the back of the line. James is saying so much of the conflict that we are experiencing is because we're doing the opposite. We're trying to put ourselves at the front of the line. We're putting our desires, our pleasure, our seeking first. See, our desires can take over. And in our pursuit of fulfillment, we can begin to shove those around us in order to get the best and the most for ourselves. And I think to truly understand what James is saying, we have to really remember this very important spiritual reality. And the Bible says very clearly that you and I, in and of ourselves, we have a sinful nature. And the Bible calls this the flesh. And I think it's important for us to go back and talk about the flesh. If you've been awakened for any length of time, you know we're going to talk about the flesh. Because, and the reason why is because if we stop remembering where we were, we're going to start taking credit for where we are. If we don't go back to the fact that we were hopeless and helpless apart from Christ, I'm going to start taking credit for the work that he's done in my life. So we need to remember who we were before Christ. Now we're going to do a little theology lesson today because, again, it's important for us to understand this idea of the flesh and the war that James is talking about. And for some of you, this is going to be review. And for some of you, this is going to be new. But the Bible says that you and I were born into this world with a sinful nature. We're not born in this world clean slates like the world might want us to think or believe, right? Just go to the toddler rooms and you'll see, no, we're all born with a sinful nature, right? We come into this world broken and separated from God. And it all started with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 when they chose to disobey God and eat of the wrong tree. And when they did that, sin entered the world and it produced a sinful nature in every human being. You and I don't have to earn it. We don't have to work for it. We are born with it. We have sin inside of us. We naturally crave to satisfy ourselves, our desires with the things of this world. And because of our sinful nature, we go chasing after the world. But if you call yourself a Christian today, If you've surrendered your life over to God, you are identified not by your sin. You're now identified by the spirit in you. When you accepted Jesus, he gives you this free gift called the Holy Spirit. That's how he identifies you now. No longer by your sin, but by the spirit. 
But the problem is that the spirit is light and sin is darkness. And the last time I checked, light and darkness cannot coexist. Meaning this, that light and darkness are creating this friction inside of you. They're at constant war with each other. When you're faced with a decision to not choose God, but to choose sin, there's a war going on inside of you. Where your spirit is like, no, 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 don't go down that road. Don't go to that place. Don't drink that thing. Don't look at that thing. Don't go that place. It's never going to satisfy. It's never going to fulfill. But your flesh goes, yeah, well, do it. Do it, right? Like, it's going to be good. It's going to feel good. And isn't that what James said in chapter one when he's talking about temptation? He's like, man, temptation's going to look so good. It's like a lure, like just like when you go fishing, that lure is going to look so good. It's going to feel like, man, this is going to satisfy every need, every longing, everything I've been desiring in my life. And if I just bite down on it, it's going to be great. It's going to fulfill me. It's going to give me everything that I need. But really what we're going to realize when we bite down on that, that sin gets its hooks in us. And it's the same thing with this. The temptation is going to look so good. We're going to go, man, this is so awesome. And we're going to want to bite down on that, but it's not going to give us everything we need. It's a battle with the flesh. Galatians, Paul says it this way in Galatians 5. So I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. See, if you're coming in this place wondering why you mess up so much, wondering why you struggle so much with sin, the reality is the struggle is real for every single one of us who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We all struggle with this sinful nature. There's a fight in me and there's a fight in you against the flesh. And so James is talking to Christians about the fact that there's a war going on inside their church because there's a war going on inside their hearts. And the reality is that your flesh wages war when it doesn't get what it wants. That's why in verse two, he says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. And we read this and we go, whoa, this is like, we just got this taken to a whole new level here, right? Like, this is crazy. Like he just like shifted it into a whole new gear. Like it's a whole new level. Like why does he say that if we desire anything, but don't get it, we kill, we murder. We see this principle played out in the Old Testament. If you're familiar, king, uh, David was the king of Israel. He was ruling, but he had a son named Absalom. Absalom didn't want David to rule anymore. He wanted to rule Israel. He wanted to be a king. And so he was setting after to kill his own father because he wanted something so badly. Bathsheba, she had a grandpa named Ahithophel. And Ahithophel was so bothered by the injustice of David that David was able to, to cheat and go and, and be with Bathsheba, have uh, Uriah, her husband, killed and murdered. And, and he just kind of walked off, no problem, no consequences. And Ahithophel was so bothered by that, he joined forces with Absalom. And he was like, yeah, Absalom, let's go. Let's get this guy. Justice needs to be served. Let's kill this guy. Ahithophel offers Absalom some advice. Absalom doesn't take it. And Ahithophel gets so angry, so mad at Absalom that he goes and he kills himself. So when we don't get what we want, we have this murderous desire within us. Now that word murder in verse two can be translated to mean zealot. And like we were talking about last week, there were some zealots that were trying to kill because they weren't getting what they wanted. And some say that that's what James is referring to. But, but when, we're, when, when I look in this room, we, we could read that and go, well, what, what does that even mean? Like, because none of us are murdering our neighbors. None of us are murdering one another. Like we read this and we go, 
What are we supposed to do with this? Well, I think we can tap into what Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is talking to all his disciples, and he's teaching about kingdom principles. And Jesus is sharing all these things that they've heard. He's like, you've heard it said, you've heard it said, you've heard it said. He's like, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. That's a good thing, like don't murder people. But Jesus takes it a step further and he says, if you actually stop yourself from committing murder, but you have hatred in your heart for your brother or sister, you've actually committed murder in your heart. Jesus goes on to say, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery. Like all of us in this room would say, yeah, that's a good thing. We shouldn't commit adultery. People back then would say the same thing. But Jesus said, if you're walking around with lust in your eyes, lust in your mind, then you've committed adultery in your heart. What Jesus is doing all of this is making sure that we don't just have a good outward appearance. What Jesus is doing in all of this is making sure that you, you're not just worried about the external, what people see, but you're worried about the heart. Jesus is concerned about internal transformation. I want you to change your heart. And James is hammering home this point that left to ourselves, we want what is wrong. And our flesh will do whatever it takes to get what it wants. But here's the second reality. And that is that we war against God. We war against God. Look at what he says in verse four. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, this is strong stuff that James is saying here. Like James has said some stronger stuff before, but it seems a little softer, right? Like he'll say, hey, brothers and sisters, like don't do this. And, and he'll say some strong stuff, but he's saying, hey, you're friends with the world, enemies of God, you adulterous people. Like, why is he coming out so strong? Why is he coming out hitting? Why is he saying these things? I think the reason why he's coming so strong and so hard at us is because he wants us to wake up to the fact that we cannot be friends with the world and friends with God. And so to really understand friendship, to really understand what these verses are talking about, we got to do some work on what friendship meant then and what friendship means now. Because when we think of the word friendship today, it's kind of like a junk drawer. Like it kind of reminds me of this junk drawer in, in our house, in our kitchen. We've got this drawer that's got screwdrivers, it's got scissors, it's got tape, it's got gum, it's got, you know, pens and paper, like it's got a couple of buttons from shirts that we don't even know, like where these shirts came from, because it doesn't seem like any of them are missing buttons, you know? And so we've got all this stuff, and it's just this random collection of stuff. And I think for us, we think of friendship the same way. There are probably people in your life that you've hung out with, you know their names, their families have hung out. But then we've got social media and we've got friends on there, right? And we've all been there. We've all gotten those friend requests and we have to kind of like go digging through it. Like, how do I know this person? Oh, they were at my kid's game or, oh, I guess I do work with this person. I saw them at school once or they're my third cousin removed. So I guess I got to be friends with them, you know, like, uh, so, so we do all of that and we call this friendship. Sometimes when we think of friendship, we think of this as just a random group of people that we know or that we follow, but we're not really that close to them. But that's not how the readers of this book would have thought of friendship. And that's not how we should think of friendship when we read this word that James uses here. What he's getting at is an intimate relationship. That's how the readers would have understood this word friendship. And that's how we need to think of it. Friendship is that you know me and I know you. In fact, the readers of the first century, this would have been applied to, we're doing life together. 
We know about the sin that you struggle with. You know about the sin I'm struggling with. We're eating together. We're praying for one another. We're caring for one another. We're loving one another. We're not just kind of like, hey, I kind of know about this person. No, you know this person. There is a deep connection. You're caring for one another. And so when James says, don't be friends with the world, he's speaking to the spiritual system. He's like, hey, don't be real chummy. Don't be real close. Don't fall in love with the world's values, beliefs, morals, because they are anti-God. In fact, 1 John 2.15 says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father isn't in them. See, James says that friendship and intimate relationship with the world is enmity with God meaning that you are actively opposed to God. See, as followers of Jesus, if we start to make the world our people, if we start to befriend the world, then we are actively opposing God. It's crucial for us to, uh, to, to not think, man, I can maintain this deep connection to God and at the same time have our hearts anchored to the things of this world. James is drawing a line in the sand And he's saying, you can either be friends with the world or friends with God. You can't have a foot in either camp. You can't even straddle the line. Like that's even actively opposing God. You're either all in for God or you're all in for the world, but you can't have it both ways. The idea he's getting at is that it's flirting with the enemy. And that's why he talks about adultery. What is adultery? It's being unfaithful in a relationship. Again, if you've been to Awaken for any length of time, you know that we talk about being in a relationship with God. It's just that. You're in a relationship with him. It's not just doing acts and all of this stuff. You actually have a relationship with him. And think about how adultery works. And I want to be careful here because I know for some of you, you've walked through this or are walking through this. But I want you to understand here what James is really trying to get at when he calls us adulterous people. Because how does adultery take place? No one who's in love with their spouse and in a good, healthy marriage wakes up one day and is like, well, you know, today's the day that I'm going to commit adultery on this person. It doesn't work like that. No one wakes up and just decides that. It's a slow, gradual process where we begin to forget about our love, forget about the one we committed our whole life to. The one that we said, it's you and I, ride or die until the end. And so adultery is a slow, gradual process. And what James is saying here is if you call yourself a Christian, if you have a relationship with God, but you're flirting with the world, you're not being faithful to that relationship with God. You're making yourself an active enemy of God. You're cheating on that relationship, and that makes you an adulterer. If we were to sum all this up, James is saying that you're committing adultery on your first love. If you want to be friends with the world, go for it. But when you do that, you're knowingly making yourself an enemy of God. So what does this look like to have friendship with the world? What does this mean that we're cheating on God? If we were to take a poll in this room, we would all have different answers. We would all struggle with different things. Some might have similarities, but for the most part, we would all have different answers. There would be different things that we struggle with that we're actively opposing God with. And, and I would encourage you, here's the action point. Here's the take home, the homework this week is for you to go before the Lord. If you call yourself a Christian today, to go before the Lord and say, God, where in my life am I actively opposing you? Where in my life have I become a friend of the world? What has put, been put in my life that I value more than you, God, in my relationship with you? And you better believe when you do that, the Holy Spirit will bring conviction and tell you exactly where you've done that. And you need to turn from that. You need to make it right. Right? 
If you're looking for some starting points, though, it could just be our behavior. It's our behavior. Are we acting and talking and looking, dressing like the world? Are we dropping F-bombs everywhere we go? Can people really tell that you're a follower of Jesus or are you just somebody who just looks like the world? Are you doing what James is saying here? You're, previously, you're quarreling, you're coveting, you're fighting. Do we harbor bitter envy, selfish ambition in our hearts? Do we boast and deny the truth? You know, a very popular mantra these days in my generation is, well, I have my truth, you can have your truth. But what happens if those truths don't line up? What if my truth says that your truth is a lie? There's no such thing as your truth and my truth. We only have one truth, and it is here in God's word. This is the truth. This is what we anchor our lives to. Another indication that you're friends with the world is if anyone or anything takes a more important place in your life than your relationship with God. Maybe you need to do some self-evaluation and go, man, is it my work? Is it my school? That was never a struggle for me, by the way. (laughs) C's get degrees, okay? So... But is it a relationship? Man, I got to get, I got to find this boyfriend or this girlfriend. I got to get married. Is it kids in your life? Is it your work status? Is it stuff? Is it vacation? What, what is it in your life that is you've put above your relationship with God? The reality is that we can have a relationship with God that would fulfill all of our desires. But we have a flesh that says, no, I think I can do better. And so we turn our backs on God. And we chase other pleasures. And James calls that adultery, having friendship with the world. Jesus even said in Matthew chapter 6, you can't serve two masters. It doesn't work that way. You either love the one and hate the other. You despise the one and serve the other. So how do we war against God? By being friendly with his enemies. So we war with each other. We war against God. And just as James cuts us down to the knees, he turns and he says something about how we can have peace. And that's our third and final point, And that is that God wants what is his. Look at the middle of verse five. It says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. What does it mean that God is jealous? Because I think when we read that, our minds immediately go to a jealous boyfriend or a jealous girlfriend. That's not what James is alluding here when he says that. God is not jealous about you. He is jealous for you. Listen, he wants what is his and he will do whatever it takes to get what is his. And when you think about everything that James has just said, this is a wild concept that the God of the universe, the God that we cheat on, the God that we commit adultery on, his response, that his desire is that he would want a relationship with you and with me. He wants to be the most important relationship in your life. See, our response to a cheater is to divorce, to move away, to rebuke, to push away, exile, and cancel. But God's response is jealousy. Even though we abuse his love, even though we go to the world and we cheat on him, we think, man, this is going to be so much better if I could only have this. Even though we do all of those things, why would God be jealous for us time and time again? It's because he wants us. He looks at us and he goes, that's my daughter. That's my son. That's my child. He wants what is his. He wants a better way for us, a better life for us. 
God loves you too much to leave us out there. God will not divorce you. He won't cancel you. He won't go anywhere. He is jealous for you. And some of you this week, as you go and you ask God, where have I become friendship? Where, where have I had friendship with the world? Where, where has the world become more important? And you've become less important. And as God reveals that, you're going to be like, man, I really am an enemy of God. The invitation for you then is that he is jealous for you. Come to God as you are in the midst of your shame and the guilt that you feel and go, God, I'm sorry for leaving you. God, I'm sorry for abandoning you. God, I'm sorry for chasing after these things and thinking that these things will give me all the desires and everything that I'm looking for in my life. God, I'm sorry for those sins in my life. Go back to him. Yes, come to him just as you are. Yes, he will forgive you, but because he loves you, he doesn't want you to stay that way. He wants you to change. No one goes back to a relationship and it's like, well, I'm so sorry I cheated on you. And then goes back and then continues to cheat on you and cheat on you and cheat on you and cheat on you. It doesn't work that way. That's not love. You never came back. So you come back and you acknowledge who you are. You acknowledge who you've been, what you've done. But because of his love for you, you have no choice but to want to change out of love for him. You don't change to get his love. You change because you've been loved. See, it reminds me of a movie back in 2008 called Taken. How many of you have seen that movie? Okay. If you haven't seen that movie, it's been out for a long time. All right. I, I, I'm going to give you some spoilers. I'm sorry, but you know, it's been a while. All right. So there's no excuse. Don't be like, oh, this is on my top 10 list to watch this week. No, it wasn't. Okay. Like you've had time. All right. But, but if you've seen the movie, it stars a guy named uh, Liam Neeson. And, uh, and he's a, he plays a CIA operative. And um, he, he, his daughter wants to go. She's graduated. She wants to go to Europe and, and you know, do that kind of thing. And, and he's like, yeah, no, don't go see Europe. You don't need to do that. That's a bad idea. A lot of bad things can happen to you. And she goes, no, come on. And so he finally gives in and she goes and she meets some guys and they're not good news. They're bad news. They end up taking them, hence the name of the movie, and they put them through the sex trafficking ring. And so he finds out about this and he finally makes, maybe about midway through the, the movie, he makes contact with her captors. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I did a Godfather impression. You're welcome. I cannot do a Liam Neeson impression. So you're going to have to watch this quote online. It's a very famous quote, but listen to what he has to say. He says, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills that I've acquired over a long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I'll not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Now, as a dad, like that's, that's a firing up speech, right? Like I think a lot of us would get that tattooed on our leg, right? Like I wish I had a particular set of skills. I'm like, where do you get these skills? Because like that sounds like really good. Like I don't have any kind of skills. And I'm like, man, I really like this quote. Like, you know, like that movie speaks to me as a dad. But here's the thing. I'm not advocating for that kind of violence. But here's, here's what I want you to know. If you know the end of the movie, he deals with these captors. He kills all these people and he rescues his daughter. And while he's holding his daughter in his arms, she looks up at her dad and she goes, Daddy, you came for me. And he looks at his daughter and he goes, I told you that I would. That's the idea. Here's what I want you to see. 
Just like a a father who would passionately pursue his kid, literally do whatever it takes to get his kid back, that's God's jealousy for you. The jealousy of God should not make us nervous. It should make us praise him for his passion towards us. And then James says this in verse six, but he gives more grace. In the Greek, uh, I love it, it's translated, but he gives mega grace. He gives mega grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, this is one of the most important realities of God that we could never exhaust, and that is his grace. See, the daughter in the movie, when she's on that boat being rescued by her father, she was looking at her dad, who did whatever it took to get to his daughter. And in that moment, she was humbled. And that should be our response as well. When we look at our sinfulness, when we look at our rebellion, and we see all the sins that we deal with, even right now, as you're thinking about the sins in your life that you are dealing with, that you're struggling with, and you're thinking about all your sinfulness and all of your rebellion, and you realize, man, I did all of this. But it says in God's word that... uh, that even though we were sinners and wanted nothing to do with God, God and his great love for us sent Jesus to this earth to live and die and rise again so that we can have a relationship with God. And when we look at our sinfulness and all the things that we do and this flesh that we battle with and we see all of this, our response should be humbled. And in humility, we should look at God and go, God, you came for me. We're humbled. And this is good news because no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what your week has looked like, no matter what sin you are dealing with today, God gives mega grace. Liam Neeson didn't hold his daughter in that moment when she was rescued and say, I told you this was going to happen. I told you not to do this. You shouldn't have gone there. We shouldn't have done this. God doesn't look at you and wag his finger and say, I told you you'd mess up. I told you all these things, but he gives more grace. Grace for our mistakes. Grace for our betrayals. He gives more and more and more. Now, I I, want to say this, because immediately when we hear all this stuff, that God wants us, that that he created us to have a relationship with us, that he gives grace to us, immediately we could just think, well, I'll just receive this grace, and then I'm good to go. I'll just live my life however I want. That's not how it works. It's just like what I said before. You don't go back to a relationship and say, sorry, I cheated on you, and you just keep doing it and doing it. That's not love. You never came back. When you realize in all of your sinfulness what you've done, you don't want to do those things. You want to make it right. You turn from those sins. You don't justify it and go, well, God's got mega grace. The Bible would even say that we're making a mockery of the cross and what Jesus has done. So that's not our response. Yes, God is gracious. Yes, God is loving. Yes, God is merciful. Yes, God is forgiving. But he's also a mighty, powerful, all-knowing God. And so he is a balanced God in all of this. So when we recognize God's love for us, it should produce a change in us. And that's why in verse 7, James says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In other words, hey, don't go trying to do this thing where you have one foot in the world, one foot living for God. Submit, really all of verse 7 is very militaristic in it, in the terms, re- submit, resist, all of that. But submit just means fall in line. Do what God has told you to do. Obey him. Because if you don't, that makes you an enemy of God. See, when we submit to God, choose God, love God, trust God, exalt God above everything else in our lives, 
The reality is we want to exalt everything in our life. Our, the flesh is like, hey, exalt your status. Exalt this, exalt that. We want to exalt ourselves above everything else, but we need to exalt God above everything else we have. And when we do that, when we submit to God, trust God, love God, then we can resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, here's what that means. He's not talking about the devil. Like the devil's not omnipresent like God is. God is the only one who's omnipresent. The devil's not like that. If he's tempting you over here, he's not tempting you over there because he's not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at one time. Really what he's getting at in this verse is that when we resist temptation, we have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. We can say, no, I'm not giving in. No, I'm not choosing that. Yes, I'm choosing God. I'm trusting God. I'm not going to give in to the flesh. And when we do that, when that temptation comes and we resist it, it's gone. And then later in verse eight, he says, we draw near to God and God will draw near to us. And we'll talk about that next week. But isn't it amazing that God would want to be near adulterers, cheaters, lovers of the world? And if you're here today and you recognize that God has not been the center of your life, that you've been chasing after all sorts of other things, today would you receive his grace? And I use that word receive intentionally because you can't climb a ladder to his grace. You can't become holy or righteous enough for his grace. It's simply a posture of receiving. And for some of you, maybe you need to receive his grace for the first time. For others of you, maybe you've been playing church your whole life. You come to church, you pray, you read God's word, you might serve, you might give, but you haven't fully submitted and surrendered to God. Today, would you receive his grace? For many of us, we spend our whole lives trying to find fulfillment, trying to fill a void in our life. You need to know only God can fill that void. He can give you ultimate fulfillment. In fact, I love what Augustine said. He said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Are you restless today? I can tell you from experience, it's exhausting. God is the answer. He loves you more than anyone else could ever love you. He has a place of belonging that's deeper than you could ever experience. And his purpose for you is more significant than you could ever dream. But are you willing to receive his grace today? Resist being friendship with the world, having that friendship, and experience today his mega grace. Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We'd love to hear how this message or the ministry of Awaken has impacted your life. Let us know at awaken.church forward slash my story.